Welcome back to Institutionalized, a podcast about American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Aaron Sabarium, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. And I'm Charles Fain Lehman, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute and contributing editor of City Journal. Charles, how are you doing today? I'm trying to power through the holiday season. I don't know when this one's going to come out. I think come out in a couple of weeks. So we'll still be in the we'll be in the midst of the holiday. It's 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 towards the end of November when we're recording, but we'll be in, still in the in the depths of the holiday season, which is just like nobody has any time for anything, and everybody is just like, here's the thing, I'm Jewish, so my kids celebrate Hanukkah, but my wife's family celebrates non-religious Americanized, you know, family fun time Christmas. So we do that. And my anniversary is at the end of December. So I just have to spend the entire month trying to think of presents for people. Ah. So so I'm I'm looking forward to January. And when I'm my 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 escapist fantasy is that I make plans for I'm I'm supposed to go to I was just to go to San Francisco at the end of January. Charles, why the why the hell would you go there? I'm hopefully assuming everything comes together. I'm I'm giving testimony about anti-Asian hate crimes. And I oh, okay. The anti-Asian hate crime capital. So you're you're going to you're going to help. The downtrodden, oppressed people of San Francisco, yeah, basically, not not to go get drugs. Well, so, from so the downtrodden, oppressed people. My, my, my tentative, my tentative plan. I actually have to. I have to make some moves on this. This is really a vague plan at this point. Is to see if I can do a tour of the drug dens of Portland before I go to San Francisco, oh and do some God. reporting while I'm out there too. So it's a twofer. I, whenever I whenever I travel, I try to come up with you know what are what are the weirdest things that I can do while I'm traveling. Yeah, so I'm gonna. I'm, I guess I'm, I've actually never been to San Francisco. I'm gonna I'm gonna get the full experience. Oh boy. Oh boy. I uh, yeah, you're going to you're going to see a lot of homeless people. Have you been? Yeah, once and this was before it got really terrible, but I I mean, I mean it was a few years ago so pre-pandemic and like it wasn't as bad as it is now, but you know, I still noticed there were just homeless people just everywhere in the streets and yeah. Yeah. it was weird cuz all the all my friends who I was with were like, "Oh, look at this cute little nice you know, thrift store. Isn't it great?" And I was like, you know, oh, and it's LGBT pride. Isn't it so inclusive? And I was like, there's all these homeless people, you know, this is kind of, it's like this juxtaposition of like celebrate of the, the sort of celebration of progressive rituals with the hard, brutal consequences of progressive governance staring you right in the face. And all my friends were just oblivious to this contrast. And I was like, it's kind of dystopian. I don't know, man. I, I feel like this is a natural segue to our topic. Do you, do you want to tell our listeners what we're, what we're talking about this week? Yeah. So this week, we're going to be talking about California, or more specifically, what some have dubbed CalExit, the phenomenon of people leaving California, particularly entrepreneurs and business people. California is the fourth largest economy, I think, in the world in terms of nominal GDP. Uh, Is that right? It's a massive economy, you know, and yet it's on the verge of a new demographic era in which population decline is what's going to characterize the state's politics and its social life increasingly going forward. You've seen a lot of firms in California, which have driven its prosperity, decamping in record numbers in recent years. I think what's this is it nearly 115, n- nearly 150 in the 18 months following January 2020 alone left California. Today, what we're going to be talking about is why are so many prominent businesses and also so many prominent business people leaving California and kind of what is it about California's governance that has driven this exodus? It's a big topic. Charles, what are your your basic thoughts? Yeah, you know, I think, right, our, our, our interest is sort of in institutional decay or the, the, the decay of governance in California our guest is sort of has a lot of on the ground experience, a lot of thoughts about this. And to me, I think that there's an interesting, there's an interesting model here. One successful model, one hypothetically successful model of governance is basically high productivity, high tax, where like you have, this is almost the Nordic model, right? You, you, you have a lot of, well, the Nordics are a little differently because they have, they have natural resources. But like in principle, if you have some major source of wealth and you have a relatively unfettered market and you allow people to be productive, but to be productive, you can then tax and redistribute and that's beneficial for everybody you know that's a great sort of optimal oh that that is an interesting hypothetical what i find interesting in california is that you know when we're talking about people leaving the state productive people leaving the state it seems like the state has not selected the optimal mix of, of benefits and burdens for the people that 
fund its tax base. It's sort of it's it's beginning to chip over the edge from the the, the, the failure to provide available for services, particularly for the owners' taxes you're paying is not bad enough that you're willing to go somewhere else because of the benefits to now it really is bad enough. And I'm interested basically in the in the forces that made that happen. You know, I think our guest has written about just a little bit about NGO capture, about the influence of public sector unions. It seems to me like when you have that kind of redistributive apparatus, when you when you have this sort of your theory of your theory of how to run a successful society, predatory or parasitic entities that glom onto the state are going to be a particular problem. But like you know, ultimately the question is like What's right. the matter, you know, in, in, in the Ted Frank style, what's the matter of California? Like, why why are people sort of continuing to live under what seems like relatively poor governance, particularly when they go somewhere, you know, they write of exit. Um, what are your what are your thoughts? Yeah, so so let me just start with a story that I think encapsulates an interesting theme here. Recently, the San Francisco Elections Committee, which is a civil service body, it's not elected, the deep state, if you will. The, the elections committee declined to renew its contract with very well-respected and very competent elections director, John Arts, who had really taken San Francisco's election system from kind of third world mess to a pretty good, well-run machine. He, the reason that the elections committee declined to automatically renew his contract. They'll still let him reapply for the job. They're opening a search for it after 20 years is because John Arts is a white man. And their thought is, well, if we don't, re- you know, open this up to a competitive search, right? And, you know, allow diverse talent to compete, we will have, you know, there won't be racial equity. So we need, and, and the city has some like racial equity plan where all the departments have to pursue racial equity. So, you know, the Elections Commission, this non-elected body, they don't fire their competent guy exactly, but they basically they basically say you might be fired, you know, just because you're white, depending on what happens at the end of this process. What's funny about this is that I think probably would strike a lot of people as absurd, and it did. It struck the elect the elected officials of San Francisco, including London Breed and all these woke these woke politicians, as hey guys, come on. This guy, you know, made our election system really good. Why the hell are you now making noise about maybe getting rid of him? So that on its own would seem to suggest that part of this problem is kind of activist civil servants almost taking progressivism even further than what elected officials and the people of California want. At the same time, it's complicated by the fact that the Elections Commission is appointed by the elected officials who are now criticizing it. Right. And some of the people who voted to like open kind of start the process that might remove this guy were themselves appointed by the elected officials who are blasting the election commission for politicizing, you know, election administration. I think this is an interesting story because it kind of raises the question to what extent is this a problem of unelected of NGOs, the what I might call the California deep state? And to what extent is it the voters themselves? And I mean, we'll get to this with our guest in a sec, but I, you know, I want to, I want to sort of float the hypothesis that it's, 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 it's often difficult when talking about California to like totally disentangle how much of it is just insane woke activists versus how much of it is voters who maybe don't love the woke activists, but do in fact make choices to empower them, right? I mean, the voters are the ones who put the elected officials in charge who in turn appoint the woke activists. And yes, the voters may be recalled, whoever the the school board members, great. But how did the school board members get there in the first place? I do think California is an interesting case study in kind of to what extent we can really absolve the people of what they vote for. Yeah. Well, I think a great guy to discuss all of these topics with and more is our guest, Joe Lonsdale. He's an American entrepreneur, investor, and philanthropist. He's helped found more than a dozen companies, including Palantir, Adapar, OpenGov, Affinity, Epirus, Resilience Bio, and his venture capital firm, 8VC. Joe, welcome to Institutionalized. Thanks for having me. I don't even know how I pronounced it. Epirus? Epirus? 
Epirus. Epirus was the name of the bow of Theseus. Had infinite arrows in legend. He's, this, you know, Theseus started in Athens. Uh-huh. And electronic warfare now is very important. You could turn off the bad guys from far away with infinite mark grit radiation shots. And so Epirus is, is cool. a cool ton of history of the West. There. I want to do that. Wow. That's very cool. Yeah, so so thanks so much for joining us on the show. You know, I think we 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 like to we like to open with a provocative question. I you know the the framing of the show is is about people leaving California and governance of California, why people are departing. This also I, I alluded to I, to I think in an email. This is a concept of Cal Exit, but Cal Exit is also apparently a movement for California to become its own sovereign country. Would California and/or the United States be better off if California became its own sovereign country? Oh. I mean, definitely, definitely. So, so I, I, uh, you know, I, I definitely, I don't mind the fact that the Pledge of Allegiance and when I was a kid, you know, I said, it's, I think it's indivisible was, was one of the things you had to say, all right, pledge to the flag. And, and, but, you know, I was not so against the Pledge of Allegiance, but I think that's wrong. I think the world works a lot better with, with, with more competition between governments and with smaller governments. And, and it would, t- I would absolutely force California to be better. And and it would force the U.S. to be, be better and help the U.S. to be better if they stop And I think this would be a great thing. I mean, you still want to be closely allied. You still want to have free trade as much as possible. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that would be that would be wonderful if Texas or, or Texas or California or other places were able to actually be free and not be subject to like an evil giant unaccountable federal bureaucracy which shouldn't exist. So that's that's definitely the case. Okay, well let's say uh, <laughs> we we let's start with the controversial question. Give us controversial answer, which I love. Let me let let's take a step back and sort of get some of the raw facts for our listeners. In 2020, you relocated your family, your firm, hundreds of people from California to Texas. Why? So, so my, you know, my, my firm, my firm is half Texas, half California. To be told, to be to be, to be totally frank, but we did relocate our our family, a lot of our friends, a lot of our colleagues. You know, there's there's a lot of little reasons. I think the bigger reason, the bigger reason is we weren't inspired to be part of the future of California. We, we didn't feel it was ethical to be supporting California with huge sums of money and about wealth we were creating. We didn't feel good about it. We didn't feel it was a healthy place to raise our children. Right. Well, so, so you, this though didn't really used to be the case, right? Because you wrote in your op-ed that California used to have a very entrepreneurial spirit. And indeed you said government policy facilitated that entrepreneurial spirit. So, so how did California do that? Why was it such a hub of prosperity and innovation? And then kind of what changed? So you know, my, when my parents, you know, moved to California in the 70s, people came there in the 50s, 60s. It was, it was, it was, it was the frontier. You know, and you, you know, it's really healthy for society to have frontiers. Frontiers are places you can go and you mm-hmm. can build and you can try things. And you, and you do it and we're very free and there's not, there's not like lots of bureaucracy and rules. There's not lots of taxes. There's not lots of restrictions. And what, what changed is that California is no longer the frontier. And there's, there's lots of little aspects of that. And I think one of the biggest aspects of it was, was the policy against building against, you know, the Bay Area zone, 40% for cattle. It's one of the most expensive parts of the whole world. You're either very wealthy with a nice house or you're commuting, you know, an hour, two hours if you if you make a normal salary. It is that there's not that kind of restriction. There's just there's just there's just there's there's so many there's so many aspects, right? It's it's, it's it's hard. You can give like 30 different examples of how public safety broke down, of how the wildfire policy has screwed things up, of you know, of of of, of just like just like how you know, just just in general, the area is just really hard to do business in now, and all the small businesses are harassed. But I, I think the bigger thing is that it became a place that was captured by special interests. It became a place that really like had some like radical, wacky politics take over. And, and it's, just, it's just not the kind of place you know, where, where you want to live, where you want to build. Right. Well, so, so what are your theories for why those interests and wacky politics took over? Because that wasn't always quite the case. Well, you have very, very powerful government unions and what happens is these unions, if you want to work for the government, and there's, you know, now a couple million people work for the government, you have to give money basically to the unions. And there's been some Supreme Court changes on that recently, but still, it's like by, by, by default, they all give money to the unions. And, and, and then these unions elect the far less politicians. And so there's not, you know, you know, the left became so powerful. There's not really a functional right in California. There's two parts of the left. There's a union left and the moderate left. And the union left was winning. 
And so when you, when you have special interests winning, then that, that really, really breaks a lot of things, right? You got the best prison guards in the world and they keep giving themselves raises, even when we're cutting funding for other critical things. And, and you, you, you just get a lack of accountability. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's very strange. Like, why is the radical left so broken in our society? I, I really do think it does tie these interests. I think, for example, in homeless, the homeless industrial complex in SF and LA, they pay themselves billions of dollars. They have these political machines where they have thousands of people who work for them in San Francisco, in LA, are very critical to all the local elections. And they and they just kind of perpetuate their power. Like, you know, you saw the Rick Caruso, Karen Bass election in LA. Like the reason, the reason she beat Caruso is just this massive number of thousands and thousands of these people who work for these places, you know, paid quote unquote work homelessness, you know, for the city. And it's, 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 you, 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 you just get these kind of special interests, I think, that break things. I think that's a big part of it. Do you have a sense of, and I, I, I want to ask about the business business experience in California in a second, but do you have a sense of what gave special interests particular leverage in California? You know, I think I think one potential explanation is that California politics is, politics is fairly centralized in the party apparatus. That seems to be true. Some of it may be regulatory. Do you have a sense of why in a state, why, why in a state like California, special interests have disproportionate power relative to other states? You know, there's, 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 there's a lot of little things. I think the case of the constitutional battle with Serrano versus Priest in the seventies was pretty important where they basically redirected all the funding to be controlled at the state level. So it used to be the like, like local housing kind of funded, funded basically local schools and you kind of control it yourself and people locally would really support building and would really kind of have their own frameworks where they'd want to allow and bring, if you're a poor area, you basically open it up and keep it a frontier because you need to bring more people in to fund yourself. And, and, and when they, when they ruled that like all the funding had to be totally equal in the state, there's this like, this idea of equality outcome, right? Which is very dangerous, which the left really likes. And it sounded like a good thing to do, but it basically destroyed all of the incentives for these poor local areas to allow more building. And so the kind these, these places became a lot more sclerotic. And when you, when you have that kind of control and you have the incentive goes away to be expansive, then you, then you get instead of very zero sum mindset. When you have a zero sum mindset, you get captured by special interests. So I, I think I think I think that it's kind of kind of a walkie little mm. thing, but I think it really screwed up the incentives in the late seventies. And I think from there, the housing policy was broken. You know, in, in, ter- in terms of why, in terms of why the, the state got captured, it's just it's just a big thing. So it's worth capturing. You know, when you have the bigger something is, the, the more worthwhile as people to go capture it. So because it was, I think, the wealthiest state in the nation, it's, it's, it's like the oil purse, right? When you, when, you have com- yeah. when, you have country, when you have countries that make so much money just from oil, and they're so rich, then all these people are going to do all they can to, to, to capture them in a very zero-sum way. So I think, I think unfortunately, that the, the, the zero-sum influence to capture California and capture the government and then use that for these their own their own ends became like the, well, a very very good good incentive for lots of these groups and they, and they succeeded in doing it. So just just to sort of tunnel down on this theory for a second, how do you think about avoiding that outcome? Right. So you're you're sort of trying to recenter in Texas, but it seems like if you have any source of productivity, you're going to be able to want to be extractive of that productivity or want to who want to extract rents from that through the state. How do you how do you think about avoiding that uh, configuration well, this, this repeating whole... itself? It's the whole point of like a healthy society, right? Is it requires civic duty, requires participation. So you you naturally are always going to have special interests trying to capture things top down, and, and the duty of the citizens, the duty of the, of the successful people, is to push back on that and expose it, fight it, and stand up to it. And, and you see this trying to happen in California too. And these groups in California have gotten very good at the ad hominem. This is why this is why the far left is the party of ad hominem because they're, they're the party that captures these institutions. And, so they, and then they have to scare everyone from attacking them. So they have to basically go after everyone and go after them by name and say they're a bad person, say that they hate homeless people or say that whatever else they want to say about them and make them afraid to stand up to it, right? So I think you need to have a culture that understands that their special interest trying to capture things, that understands it's a duty of successful people to stand up to them, and they understand those people will be attacked and they will be demonized. And they, like, there's, this, there's this naivety on the left in America, like, oh, that's a bad person. Haven't you heard their name smeared? You got to watch out for that guy. And this is this thing that the left falls for very easily. But then and that, and that, that actually gives that far left power, the fact that they can cancel people, the fact that they can say, oh, they're bad, because that's, that way, that's how they scare you from not standing up to them. 
So, 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 so what we have to do as a society is we have to realize that if you are fooled by this whole cancel culture, you're an idiot. You're basically going along with the special interests. What one question, sort of a parenthetical, but one theory that some on the sort of further right give for California's transformation is demographics. And they cite these large waves of immigration, especially, although not exclusively Hispanic and to some extent Asian immigration to California. And they say that that kind of created a permanent constituency for the far left and it gave, gave the left a lock on the institutions. And then the strain of the right tends to say, and California's future is coming for all of us. Given that you are yourself a kind of, almost a kind of immigrant from California to Texas, what do you make of that particular kind of conservative story for the capture of California? You know, we were just with Governor Abbott and I, I was telling me he won 52% of the vote for the Asians in Texas. So it's clearly possible for a good politician mm. to whatever ages. I think he won about 40% of the Latino vote. And that's mm. about consistently. There, there is actually an instance, I don't know if this is controversial or not. There's a slight difference between Texas and California in terms of the, the where the Latinos come from. Now, it, it turns out for, for, for various historical reasons, the Southern Mexican you know, pe people are slightly more collectivist than the Northern Mexican people and maybe more, you know, European versus ah. Aboriginal or something. So California does have people who are from the more collectivist part of that culture. So they are naturally more on that side. But guess what? It's not like built into their genome. Maybe that's, that's, sure that's a culture where they are slightly more collectivist sure. or left. But I think we've proven, definitely proven that, that, that both sides, you know, will stand up. And you, you, you saw the Asians in San Francisco stand up and say enough is enough throw out a lot of the far left school board, throw out a lot of the far left recently. I think, I, I do think there's various historical reasons why the left has done a better job in California, you know, appealing to, appealing to the Asians. And, and I think, I think that's something the right really failed out there. And I think, you know, I think the right needs to do a better job, but it just doesn't mean that it's like a, it's just like a thing that's going to always happen. I mean, definitely Texas definitely has the Asians on the right. So, I mean, come on, it's, it's yeah. possible to appeal to people. You know, this is this was this interesting historical theory with like Taiwan and South Korea and all these places that they were going to be poor forever, that, that they couldn't be free, and they didn't, and then you know, democracy wasn't suited to the Asian race. This was like a whole theory hundred years ago, and it's obviously all wrong, right? And obviously, you can't have freedom no matter no matter you know who you are. I think freedom does work better for for people no matter what their background is. I think that's something we've all learned. Yeah, so let me let me zoom in on a specific example and and ask you for your take because I think this this gets at you know why the the, the persistence of what you call the the you know the, the progressive left or the union left in California. You talked about the Los Angeles mayor's race, which is sort of a bellwether. Yes. It's sort of an interesting race actually for, for the benefit of our listeners. It's sort of an interesting race because the mayor of Los Angeles actually doesn't have that much power. So it was a it was it was a it was a headline race with less of an impact, but it was contested by U.S. Representative Karen Bass, who was sort of the progressive candidate and businessman. Yeah, well, he's like they've had forever, basically. There, so people like yeah. him. Yeah, and 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 Rick Caruso, who's a who's a local businessman, ran a self funded moderate campaign. Former Republican became a Democrat. Ran a campaign on homelessness, crime, public order in the city. Um, and I mean, he just like the left celebrities were supporting him. I mean, it was like they're yeah. so out. Like like everyone said, we have to have something different. Right. Katie Perry, Katie Perry, and, and Kim Kardashian. Perry, yeah, amazing, right. It's not not a usual person you'd expect to be doing that. But 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 Basta won by six percentage points. So you know if 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 what what went wrong for Caruso? That's so you know, a little naive, but I think it gets to the bigger thing. There's these giant machines. I mean I mean Bass has like this built-in like ten to fifteen percent advantage just based on the thousands and thousands of people who are paid not only by the city but the NGOs, the NGOs, the nonprofit groups. The city spends a billion dollars a year on like these people are like basically a, a leech living off of the tax dollars and basically yeah. taking those money dollars and lobbying them back in. And, and, and basically they're very powerful because if you want to get elected to the city council or to mayor in any of these blue cities in America, you basically have to be friendly with the giant homeless industrial complex that you're funding. And with all these people you're funding in San Francisco, there's like 15% or something that people are getting money towards their rent. To, to, it's, it's called homeless dollars, but really what it is, it's a bribe for like a huge portion of the city that's automatically going to vote for you. And so, so these people control these cities and it's, it's, it's not really like a healthy democracy because you have huge amounts of money going to all these machines. And these, 
like during the election, you see it. You see basically mm-hmm. thousands of these people going around helping pass out things, telling you who to vote for, like helping bring people to the polls. It's just this amazing organizations that have formed the you know, it's, it's, it's machine city politics, and, and these cities are broken. And these and the fact that anyone would vote with the machine, it's just like you have to be a non-player character. You have to be stupid to do it. And it drives me crazy. Like we often, like just, but this is like how these cities work. These people don't pay attention to politics. They don't think about it. They're told they're a good person by the machine, and they just go along with it. And it's just so frustrating because you, you just get this lock on these cities. They become so dysfunctional. It's interesting because one of the kind of classic and I think oversimplified kind of normie conservative arguments is, ah, when there's big government, it crowds out civil society. But here it seems like it's a little more complicated. It's that big government actually effectively like subsidizes a kind of civil society organization, right? These homeless NGOs would say, oh, well, you know, we're these voluntary associations dedicated to helping people. You know, we're, we're models of Tocquevillian democracy, right? You could totally see them making that argument. Except the problem is that once those, the organs of civil society almost become dependent on government, it creates all these perverse incentives. And then in a sense, you could say civil society or NGOs, the private sector, whatever itself starts to function in a kind of non-civil, anti-social way. What, what do you make become, of that analysis? Yeah. They, yeah, that's right. They become extremely powerful. I, think, I mean, there's all these things we could do to fix it, right? We could make them accountable. So like one of the laws that my group CISRO, our, our policy group, got passed in, in, in Missouri this last year was pay for performance. So you actually have the groups have metrics and goals, and they're only going to get more money if they're hitting those metrics and goals, basically make them accountable. They're, they're obviously extraordinarily against being accountable in California. There's no accountability at all. You'll, you'll sometimes see things being paid huge amounts of money and they help like 32 people. And it's, it's a joke, basically, you know, it's, and it's, so yeah, these, these things, these things start to exist for their own sake, not for the sake that they're supposed to be there for. And, and they, and they, and they exist to perpetuate themselves and to perpetuate the system. This is, this is naturally how all systems trend. And what you need is you need really strong men and women leaders or go in and you can show it off and, 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 and point it out and, and get people to fix it, fight it. But that kind of fight is very rare in our society. That kind of fight requires courage. It requires, it requires resources. It requires basically putting yourself on the line to be attacked and, and, and demonized uh, with, to the cancel culture of the far left. Mm-hmm. And there's very few people willing to do it. And I, I've, I've, I've done some of it, you know, but part of the reason I moved from California is I'm not afraid of these fights, but I'd much rather have spent all of my life fighting where I might not even win a, a really, really tough battle because there weren't people in California fighting and pushing back. I'm like, you know what? I'd rather do this fight where I am able to have some wins. So I've gotten a lot of these laws passed in nine other states that I work in now, including you know, in Texas, Texas and Florida. I'm able to get things done. Uh, in California, it's very, very hard. Even Rick Caruso, worth you know, $5 billion, a lot really me, spent hundreds of millions of his own, own money got celebrities to back him, still couldn't beat the machine in LA. So I mean, it, it is really locked in in California. It's very frustrating to me. So let's, let's talk just a little bit going off of that about, about exit as a strategy. Obviously you're, you know, you, you're not the only person to leave California to camp to Texas. I think you've seen a lot of people move out of New York and into Florida. What do you think are the merits of that kind of relocation? Why do you see it as a, as a good strategy or a good response? Well, and, and then you either have, you, I mean, exit is a very good response because we're going to basically, basically going to defund California over time if enough of the most successful people leave and it's going to force them to have to change. So I think, first of all, it's good rather than just feeding the beast in California. It's, it's, it's a healthier for them not to, not to be able to have that. It's good for my family and I because <laughs> Texas is a, you know, Texas is actually a little more, a lot more of a frontier. It's a lot more of a place to build. Uh, it's, it's, it's dynamic. The culture's very exciting and interesting and positive here. You have people coming from, like you said, New York, Chicago, California, we're very successful people on the land here. Like if there's building new things, there's new art, you know, being created. There's, there's great music culture here. There's new businesses we're building here. So it's just, it just seems like a much healthier thing to do is go somewhere healthy, go somewhere dynamic, you know, and that's, and then Texas has really become a place where. You know, just by every metric, right? There's like better, like the, the, the law reform they've done here is better. There's the tutorial law is better. You can't get harassed as much by crazy trial lawyers. The labor law is better. You can't just have like random people. Like in some of our companies in California, we just keep getting sued by the same lawyer. We find the reliefs, convince them to work with them and just sue the company and get an extra 50, 100K. And I, 
And I wanted to settle with the with the lawyer. We're like, listen, you can't keep doing this. That's against the law. You can't even settle with the lawyer. <laughs> it's not allowed. It's, you know, so it's like they just keep hitting you every time someone leaves. It wasn't even one of my companies. It was something I invested in, right? So I'm not there. And it's just, it's just like it's a scam. And in California, you're basically guilty until proven innocent with these labor law things. There's just so many reasons why it's just a healthier place to build. Well, but so, 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 so I'm sort of, are they, I'm, I'm interested in sort of generalizing that as a model. Would you encourage other people to leave California? What are the contexts that would make you go back? How do you, how do you think generally about using, about using exit as an approach? You know, to- so, so my wife and I saw it as unethical to continue to pay large sums of money to the California government. The California government is so clearly broken, so clearly corrupt, that I think funding it, you have to look at yourself in the mirror and say, what am I doing? I, I, think, I, think, I, think, I think it's cowardly to stay there and keep funding it. I think you're making a bad ethical decision. I think you should feel badly about yourself if you stay in California when you, you have the ability to leave because you're actually, you're literally finding something that's, that's wrong and it's yeah. hurting our country. And so, so yes, not only courage, and I've, I've told friends, I think they're cowards and terrible mm-hmm. because it's, 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 they don't believe in the system and they're fighting it in any way. And at some point, something like becomes so broken, it's, it's harming so much that they shouldn't be part of it anymore. And, and I, so I think it's something we got to think very seriously about. Great. One thing you've mentioned several times in the course of this conversation is the homelessness policy. You've talked about the kind of homelessness NGO industrial complex. Could you drill down a little bit on... A, what makes California homelessness policy so horrible? B, how that horrible policy is encouraging people to leave? And then C, what a better model for homelessness would look like? Sure. So what makes it terrible is they've completely captured the governments in San Francisco and LA. And they have these tons of special interest groups that control all the politics there. So they get massive, massive amounts of funding. Their incentives to get more funding is to have more homeless people there in a very visible way that gets them more funding. And so, so, right. they, have, so they have the very wrong incentives. And, and then they've actually traded very bad incentives for homeless people. So, so it's like when these things happen, like you get you get more sex trafficking amongst homeless, you get more, I mean, I think in LA, you have, you have like two or three deaths a day or something. It's just like, it's like most coordinators that are, that are soldiers in Iraq being you know, on the streets in LA. You, you, you get drug trafficking, you get all just, just terrible, terrible, terrible stuff. And, 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 and they, we've created these really dumb incentives. Like you, something about the far left in the U.S. today, and I, by the way, I hate the far right too, but we're talking about problems for us right now. So we're talking about California. There's something about them. They just don't understand incentives at all. And it's, it's actually offensive to homeless people because these people who are people experiencing homeless, whatever you want to call them, they, they, they're not stupid. Like, 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 like some of them might be a little crazy, might even be really crazy, might be a little bit crazy, but they still respond to incentives. And right now, there's a point system we've put in all around the U.S., but especially in these blue cities, they follow it, where you get points towards getting a house. So the, so the theory in San Francisco and L.A. has been, you can do whatever you want, sleep wherever you want, and eventually you deserve a house. We're going to try to get one as soon as possible. And of course, there's all these studies just showing that it takes it takes 10 houses to take one person off the street. But but we say, whatever. So we have to figure out, like, like what who do I give a house to? And, and we want to give them that equitably. So the point system is, you get more points towards a house if you commit a crime, you get more points towards the house if you're on drugs. You get more points towards the house if you can prove you're not recovering from drugs. So if someone's waiting for a house, if they get a drug recovery program, they're less likely to get a house. What the hell do you think that does to their incentives? If you have kids, if, you, if your kids are truant, that shows you need a house more. If you get kids taken away from you by the government, you get more points towards getting a house. This is like totally freaking insane. Like, like, what do you think this does to these places? Like, we literally follow guys in these cities where we kind of map it out for a nonprofit, trying to see what's going on. And they'll go in and they'll say, in the city, do I have a house yet? And they say, no, you know, qualify. And he said, I heard if I was on drugs, I would have had enough points. I probably would have got one by now. And they, say, and they literally say, yeah, yes, sir, that, that it does seem to be, be, be the case, but we don't like to think of it that way. It's like, it's, it's like totally insane, like the incentives we put in place here. Sorry. So that's why I'm telling you why it's insane. In terms of how to fix it, it's actually not that hard to fix. Like, like that you should. You should be doing more money towards temporary shelter that's much cheaper. In Texas, the governor here with Tito from Tito's Vodka, they built things that cost like $8,000 per person for temporary shelters that were nice on state land. You don't need to do $800,000 houses in LA. $8,000 temporary shelter, so you get enough shelter for everyone. Everyone should have shelter. And you should have mental health treatment. You should have drug treatment. I'm not a fan of giving out houses, but if you're going to give out houses, Make them be clean before they get them. Don't don't make them do drugs to get them. It's the opposite. Like people go into houses in SF 
and there's like one eighth of them die in three years. It's like you're literally like giving people things they're dying anyway. It's just it's just crazy. And and and, and make everything accountable. Everything you do, make it accountable. And then and finally, like don't allow street sleeping. Give them a shelter. Don't allow street sleeping. If they break the law, you know what? You don't necessarily have to send them to prison. I don't think that you should send crazy people to prison, but you should punish them in some way where you force treatment. Like if you, if you poop on a street five times in a row, don't tell people, oh, that's fine. Go poop on a street a sixth time. You know, you can't do anything about it. You say, sorry, you're now being required to see a treatment for a month because you just pooped on the street. These people are still people. They still have incentives, right? Like, like right. Do, do some kind of forced rules. It's just, it's like you just need an adult to be in charge. It's ridiculous. So I, I, I think the, the, the homelessness industrial complex is really interesting, Mike Cosmo, the stuff you've been talking about with, with capture of institutions. I think it's, it's, it's worth sort of dwelling on why it is that, that homelessness is a place where you see this. You know, there's, there's this remarkable phenomenon where every five years we announce that we're going to solve homelessness. We're going to get rid of homelessness within the next five years. And then invariably, there's the same or more homelessness, level of homelessness within the following five years. We keep trying years. the same thing, right? It's a less insanity. We literally keep trying the same thing. Well, but I think, you know, I think part of the story there is that the homeless as a population are particularly useful if you're if your goal is to capture spending dollars, right? They're 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 usually chronically dependent. Actually solving their problems is much more complicated than just sort of giving it's, they're they're very I'll tell you how useful they are. We have a progressive mayor in Austin who's hopefully it's a hopefully get non one this we have a runoff going on right now. But we have a progressive mayor in Austin who in 2018 when he got elected, he flew to SF in LA and he said guys, how come you have so much funding for your progressive causes? We don't have very much funding at all for progressive causes in Austin. All my friends want funding like you guys were jealous. What do we do? And they literally told him, they said, you know what you have to do? You have to show people that capitalism doesn't work. You got to put it in their faces. And he came back to Austin and he brought all the tents downtown. And all of a sudden there's, and by the homeless, deaths went up, drug trafficking went up, sex trafficking went up. Progressive funding also went up. It worked. He got lots more progressive funding because there's in people's faces. My friends and I got here from SF. We said, hell no, we're not doing this again. We put a bunch of money into something called Prop B, banned the tents downtown, and overturned it. But but it's so so we actually we got 59% of the vote for that. And it's in a city that only voted 23% for Trump. So so even though these people are on the left here, they they're like, no, we're not freaking copying SF yeah. in LA, fortunately. But yeah, it does work to get funding for progressive causes. This is what they've learned. This is why you see all those people over all of our cities right now. That's their incentives to get funding for progressive causes. Right, right. What, one thing that, that stands out to me is your, your solution to homelessness is in many ways not terribly libertarian. I mean, you're not just saying do whatever you want. You know, there's, a, there's an element of paternalism here. And, all, and furthermore, it, your solution requires a kind of strong, competent, functioning state to provide these treatments. And well, not, yeah, no, Aaron, I think, I think that's a great, I think that's a great remark. I'm a realist, first yeah. and foremost. Do I appreciate liberty immensely? I think liberty is right. like critical for our entire society. It's critical for our culture, for each to be an author of our own lives. It's right. critical about a competition of ideas. It's, it's morally sure. the right answer. But, but we have to say, like, we have these cities and we have these things they're doing now, and I have to move them from something they're doing now to something that they'd be willing to do that would work, right? Right. So what would they be willing to do that would work? And that, that, that's, like the, that's like the area we have to play in. We don't have a bigger area than that. Yeah. And, what, what, and, you know, they, I think they'd be willing to do a temporary shelter. They'd be willing to do, like, you know, basic drug and mental health treatment. And, and then that would get them to be willing to also, like, you know, have some kind of homeless court system where you force treatment on people for breaking the law. Mm -hmm. And and that might be healthy overall. And it'd be a good compromise. Like, like, yeah, sure. Is there a more aggressive pro-liberty thing where, where that, yeah, sure. There probably could be, but I don't get anywhere by advocating that because it's not right. possible. So let's, let's, let's do what we can do. That's good for the homeless people, good for the city. And it's like a moderate thing we can all agree on. That's, that, that's all I'm trying to do here. Like I, I have other areas of society like, you know, where, where I might be even more aggressive if the, if, you know, if the, if the right takes over the national government, we could completely remake our regulatory state and become more accountable. Sure. Like I have a whole thing we can do there. That's way more pro liberty, but here we just got to do what we can do. Yeah. Well, so I think we want to wrap up in a sec, but one penultimate question, and then we have kind of a final one. What do you make in, in light of that answer of kind of the, the state capacity libertarianism arguments from people like Tyler Cowen? Because there's kind of this whole debate on the American right right now. It's a lot bigger than California about the proper role of government. And you, you're a critic of the federal bureaucracy, et cetera. But so, so where do you, how do you 
think about wanting to, on the one hand, not have the federal bureaucracy stifling things, and on the other hand, making sure that government writ large, not just in California, does enough to actually solve these problems. So, so I mean, as, as you guys mentioned, you know, I've started six companies that are valued the billions of dollars these days, and and, and two of them are GovTech, and I have a third one I'm working on separately. It's not that big yet, GovTech. And so I, I like helping government be less stupid. I like making government more competent. That's like, I'm probably, I'm probably the most successful GovTech entrepreneur right now alive in the U.S. in terms of the number of these successful things I've built. And, and so, so, so yes, I'm, as much as I'm annoyed at government and think that government should be smaller and it should not break things so much in our society and should allow best ideas to win more often. I also want to make government better. I want to let government work in a way that lets the best ideas win. So I, th- yeah, so I, I think, I think, yes, I think state capacity libertarianism is a way to put it. And I, I'm a big fan of Tyler Cowen as well. There's all these ways in which government can restructure things that the best ideas do it. So the government gets out of the way where it can, but then where it has to be involved, it, it's basically putting in accountability. So, so if you think about government in general, politicians on both sides are always like, I love this program to make the prison work better. The person on the right would be like, I have this Christian program for the prison. Right. The person on the left would be like, I have this entrepreneur program for the prisoner or whatever it is that they're doing. And, and actually, like in both cases, that's still the Soviet answer. That's still the top-down answer. The really great leader in government, what they do is they set things up where you're measuring outcomes and you're helping the things that are working better get more funding and the things working worse get less funding. So for example, in Texas, for our vacational schools in Texas, it's not about how much money we spend on them. It's about the fact that we change it so we only fund those schools based on the salaries of the students coming out. So you pick a metric the school cannot gain. School can gain graduation rate, by the way. So you have to pick something they can't cheat on. They can't cheat on the salaries for three years out of that school. They actually have to give you something useful to help you get the skills, get the high salaries. So once you fund the schools based on that thing they can't gain, they have to then compete and do a good job. Salaries went up 117% out of these schools all over Texas on average you know, over the next five, six years, once we actually funded them based on those outcomes, right? So, so I'm all about making government accountable and in and, and allowing it to innovate, innovate and allow innovation based on that accountability. Let me, as, as we sort of move towards closing thoughts, let me, let me ask about the, you know, let, let me ask you to predict the future a little bit, because we've been talking about reverse incentives. And we talked about your move out of California, others move out of California. Do you see a mechanism for, for self-correction? Do you see a, a, a way in which this problem is likely to resolve itself and the problems you described are likely to resolve themselves? Or do things just sort of get worse and worse until something breaks? Uh, what is, you know, what, what uh, predict the next 20 years for us? Sure. Well, creative destruction is a very healthy aspect of, of, of the market in a free society. You actually want things to break in order to then replace them with healthier things, right? And that's obviously harder to do with government. That's one of the biggest problems of government is that rather than break the things that aren't working, we just give them more money. They grow growing to the cancerous things in our society that break everything. So what you, but you do actually want creative destruction. So what are the forms of creative destruction we could see in the next 20 years? Well, you know, California, unsurprisingly, is already a deficit again, despite having a huge surplus when tech was hot, you know, you know, a year ago. And I think, I think even more than California, I think Illinois is very likely to go bankrupt in some form in the next decade, unless they completely cheat, just give a free money for the federal government. So assuming we can stop the Democrats from giving free money to California and Illinois to kind of paper over their dysfunction, at least one of those, most likely Illinois first, goes bankrupt. And we don't know what that means for a state to go bankrupt because it hasn't happened. But I think what you have to do is you have to make it painful enough that every other state says, oh, wow. The voters do not want to go through that, and, and they actually step up and change. So I think you need a shot as big as that's the system, where it's really, really tough for that state, and, and, and it's really tough in general for where people are gets thrown out. And that would be a very healthy way for states to learn and, and actually improve. So as much, you kind of need to get worse before it gets better for California, is my current view. So all all of this, these mechanisms for for self correction, rely on talented people moving around, and then also though you know, actually finding other talented people, right? That's- Well, talented people in businesses, right, Aaron? Because, yeah. I mean, Texas now, for the first time, has more Fortune 500 companies than any other state. That's, that's yes. huge. I mean, this is amazing, yes. right? So so businesses move as well, and that, that moves the people. Yeah. So, so, you know, we actually did have Tyler Cowen on a few months ago to talk about his new book on talents. And since it is in many ways your your job to- 
find and identify talent. Sort of the last question I want to ask is, what do you see going forward as the main obstacles, be they government created or not, to simply the process of identifying and acquiring talents? And what do you see as kind of the, the biggest sources of hope on that front? Well, I mean, talent definitely is what we spend the most time on, right? If you're, if you're building companies, if you're investing in top companies, there's only two questions that matter. One is what's possible now. It wasn't possible five years ago. And the other is like, where the very top talent doing? How do you get to partner with you? Because these big companies are built by the very best and brightest. We spend all our time on this. And, you know, despite the flaws in our major universities, there's still the top 20 or 30, the very best knowledge universities in the world here that everyone wants to come to that we recruit from. There's still a lot of very, very best technology companies that people come to. You know, I, I'm actually quite optimistic we're going to fix our immigration policy on talent. I think that's the most critical thing for talents is allowing the Bryce people to come here from around the world. It's a very positive sound. It benefits every American who's born here to have the Bryce coming here. People don't understand that or just bad in economics need to be taught a lot more about how economics, basic economics works. It's been like four or five jobs created for every top tech person I could hire you know, to attend to my companies here. And so, so I'm very optimistic. We're actually going to fix that. I think both parties are kind of coming around. It's so obvious. Ronald Reagan ended you know, his very last speech was about America would win as long as we continue to be a beacon to the world where the best and brightest would want to be here. Yeah, and so, so I, I think, I think we're going to fix that. It's going to work. Uh, I think China has shot itself in the head, like every billionaire and the U S in tech is that I'm not every, but a lot of them are still building and a lot of them are very critical, whether it's Elon or myself or many others I know are still building companies. No Chinese billionaires are starting their second or third companies. Now they're terrified, right? It's completely broken. What's going on, what's going on there, what they've done. So, so America is like kind of the last big game in town. This is where this is where people are coming. So, so if we don't screw it up, we're gonna we're gonna be the leader of the world in this area. We're gonna have the top talent. We're running a great place. Awesome, get for it. Well, I think that gives that's a good place for us to turn to concluding thoughts. Aaron, what's your what are your takeaways from the conversation? I guess it left me a little more optimistic. Sometimes after these episodes, I just sink into a kind of depression. God. So irretrievably broken, we're doomed, blah, blah, blah. This one left me feeling, oh, you know, there's, there's, there, there is hope. There are things we can do. The United States is a big place. I think that's the other, the other takeaway. There really is a lot of internal diversity in, in the United States. It's, it's kind of a truism, but it's something that I think a lot of doomsayers gloss over. And the fact that there is exit I think should suggest that the the doomsday prophecies of the Californianization of the entire country are perhaps overblown, right? People will leave when something stops working and people will try to make things better. I was especially struck by the fact that even in deep blue Austin, where almost nobody voted for Trump, they voted pretty decisively against the insane homeless encampment stuff, right? It is possible for to just put the evidence in front of front of people's eyes and for a critical mass to say, yeah, no, this is absurd. This has gone too far. And, you know, I I as we head into these cold, dark months and my mild seasonal affective depression disorder, you know, sets in. It's it was a nice little bright spot for my day. So those are my thoughts. What about you, Charles? You know, I I I think I sort of broadly agree with with Joe's analysis of, of the issues. I guess I'm I'm less optimistic about the power of a few individuals to make a, a profound difference. No, you know, I think I, I, the, 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 the model of the model of to, to go back to my sort of last question about is, is the way this gets better. I mean, look, I think the model of extractive governance is, is it's a stable, bad equilibrium. Like as long as you can convince people to stick it out, you're, you're going to, you're going to sort of be able to keep taking their dollars and giving them to NGOs, which makes, you know, it's part of why, part of why his departure is interesting. Because, you know, I think it's at, at the, the way that the system breaks is that eventually you drive a lot of people out. That's easier between states within the United States because we have open borders within the country. But it still takes time. It still takes effort. You know, there's still a high concentration of human capital in, in, in San Francisco, in Los Angeles. It'll take time for that to diffuse. Remote workers almost certainly sped this up, which I think is, you know, a, a net boon. But I think it, you know, that is sort of the, the, the way I see out of this is like at the end of the day, people have to leave. Because they have to stop being the source of money. This isn't very Randian about it. Why don't we do a couple of quick recommendations? Aaron, do you have your recommendation for our listeners? Yeah. So a few years ago, I actually did get to go 
to Texas. It's the only time I've been there. And one of the things I did was attend the Houston Rodeo, which if you're ever in Texas when it's going on, it's a lot of fun. It's worth going to. The best part of it by far is that there are, you know, it's a rodeo. So you have people like, you know, trying to stay on bulls as they buck and gallop and stuff like that. But there's also a little thing they do for kids where the tiny children basically jump on the backs of sheep and cling to the sheep and the sheep just kind of like, you know, walk around and the little children try to stay on the sheep. And it's really, (laughs) really, really cute and really wholesome. So I highly recommend if you're ever in town for the Houston Rodeo that you attend it. Well, well, Aaron, Aaron said he was going to do an event in Texas. And so I'm going to compensate and do a thing in California. I was saying to my wife the other day, you know, most, most sort of attractions that you go to as a kid, you sort of have this big idea in your head and they don't really hold up. They're not as, they're not as great. My, my recommendation this week unambiguously is California Legoland, which is the best theme park I have ever been to my entire life. If you get the after, it's in Carlsbad. It's, it's, it's 30 minutes north of San Diego which I think is technically Red California. So, you know, it's, it's a good, wholesome family entertainment. Highly recommend it. I think that's about all the time that our guests and everyone else has. Joe, thank you so much for joining us on Institutionalized. Thanks, as always, to our producers at Nebulous. Listeners, if you have questions, comments, concerns, Californians to send our way, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Aaron Sverium. That's about all the time that we're giving to this episode. So until next week, I'm Charles Fain Lehman. I'm Aaron Sverium. And you've been listening to Institutionalized. We hope you'll join us again soon. Mm-hmm.